So this morning, I want to talk about common sense. When common sense isn't the best sense. You know, common sense is a phrase that you might hear in a conversation throughout your day. Um, Technically, according to the dictionary, it's defined as sound judgment derived from experience rather than study. We might say that a person, maybe he doesn't have book smarts, but he has street smarts. Common sense is actually a pretty revered quality here in America. It's what we desire to teach our children to have. It kind of evokes images of earlier, simple days, simpler days in our country where people just had common sense. They're down-to-earth, reliable, practical. We also might use terms like he's got his wits about him or, you know, he's level-headed. Of course, there are a plethora of phrases we use to describe people without common sense, right? I put a few on the screens, and so I thought you might find some of these kind of interesting. If you'll flip to the first one, if anybody's back there on the screens, there we go. Common sense is not a gift. It's a punishment because you have to deal with everyone who doesn't have it. Isn't that the truth? What's that next one? Common sense, if only common sense, there you go. If only common sense were more common. Kind of interesting, right? I got two more. What's the next one? Common sense is a flower that doesn't bloom in everyone's garden. (laughs) Right? And then here's my favorite, the last one. Common sense is like deodorant. The people who need it most... Never use it. Now, the irony here is that common sense is neither common nor sense. I came across an article in Psychology Today entitled, Common Sense is Neither Common Nor Sense. How Often is Common Sense Correct? That's a long title. And the author says these words. Listen to what he says. He says, there's not a whole lot of sound judgment going on these days. So whether it's worse than in the past, I can't be sure. So it's not common. If common sense was common, then most people wouldn't make the kinds of decisions they do every day. People wouldn't buy stuff they can't afford. They wouldn't smoke cigarettes or eat junk food. They wouldn't gamble. People wouldn't do the multitude of things that are clearly not good for them. And the article goes on to explain that common sense is really not common. Rather, it's contextual. It's based upon the context. Um, it's based upon the situation at hand. It's based upon the circumstances at hand. So <clears throat> let me give you a few examples. So common sense is different with a parent and with a child, right? So the parent knows that I don't touch on the stove the burner, especially when it's glowing red hot, okay? To the parent, that's common sense. To the child who's never experienced the pain of putting your hand on a burner. That's not common sense. And when they touch the burner, they literally burn into their brain as well and into their hand as well, the idea that you don't touch something that's hot. To a parent, that's common sense. It's based upon a context. It's based upon something that's happened in the past. To a child, that's not common sense. Or what about the difference between... Uh, For example, a master carpenter and an apprentice, okay? A master carpenter, when he's building a house and he's framing a wall, he knows that every wall 
by default, by nature, by common sense, it's the studs are 16 inch on center, 16 inch on center. That's the way you build the wall, 16 inch on center. When an apprentice comes in who's still learning how to use his hammer, nails, still learning not to have your phone with you the whole time while you're working, still learning um, how to use a screwdriver, still learning how to put the tool belt on so it doesn't fall off, you know, um, he may not know that. And when it comes time for him to build a wall, he may just say, well, I think maybe one or two studs on that wall is good enough when that wall really needs five or six studs on him. It's different based upon the context. Or what about an unbeliever versus a believer? A believer knows that I'm going to live my life to glorify God. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure I'm following him in everything that I do. I'm going to be as loyal as I can. I'm going to spend my lifetime following him. For an unbeliever, that's ridiculous. Because the unbeliever says, no, that's not common sense. Common sense is living your life for yourself. Living for you. Getting all that you can. For an unbeliever, that's what he thinks is common sense. For a believer, it's entirely different. And then what about maybe a mature believer versus an unmature believer or a young believer or a young Christian? The mature believer knows, I've got to read my Bible every day. I've got to spend time in prayer. I've got to meditate on Scripture. I've got to memorize it. I've got to be in church on Sunday. I've got to tell my neighbors about Jesus. I've got to get involved in my small group. I've got to get baptized. I've got to do all these things. He knows that to him, that's common sense. But for a believer who's just starting out, they may not know those things are common sense. Growing up when I was uh, younger, probably the age of, I want to say about nine or ten, Probably I was older or younger. You know how stories get when you think back and you're like, I can't remember how old I was. Somewhere in that time frame. Uh, one of the things I love to do is I love to ride my bike. My, your bike were your wheels. You know, just like today, your cars are your wheels. You know, they take you everywhere, right? Used to ride my bike all the time. And so one day I decided that I wanted to go and get a drink from the quickie market, the 7-Eleven down the street. Um, my... Uh, Mom wisely said, you know, we don't have any kind of sodas or pop or Coke, whatever you might call it, in the house. And so if you want it, you got to buy it and you got to go get it yourself. And so I said, okay. Uh, And I had money in my pocket, you know, money that always burns a hole in your pocket. You got to get rid of it. You can't let it stay in there, especially as a kid. So I decided I'm going to go and get a drink. And so I went to the quickie market. It's about a quarter of a mile from our house. wasn't very far. And to get there, you had to go over a bridge, okay? It was a railroad bridge and railroad tracks below. But it was a regular uh, bridge, two-lane highway, and had a sidewalk on the side. So a place for you to take your bike and go up and go over and go to the store. So I get my, you know, get dressed, hat, flip-flops, shorts, T-shirts. You know, it's the middle of summer, it was hot. Take my bike and I go up there and go down the bridge to the other side. Get into the quickie market, get there and get a drink, and I'm trying to think, you know, what's the most I can get for my money, you know? So, of course, the fountain drinks are the best deal, right? And so, you know, I'm I'm thinking, how much can I get for what I've got? And I'm able to get, like, one of those big gulps, you know, like 44 ounces of, you know, pure delight of soda, of whatever kind you want, big old thing. And so I purchased it, and I get on my bike, and I'm going back home. And so I'm riding back home. So I got the drink in one hand and, you know, riding the bike in the other hand, which I have done before in the past, nothing abnormal. Get up to the bridge 
and I'm going down the bridge to go back home, and I have to slow down because I'm going down the bridge. Didn't have the handbrakes like they have today all the time. I was back when you used to push the back of the pedal to stop, you know, slow down. And I like those better than those handbrakes. They kind of wear out. So, you know, so you had to push your foot down. So as we were going, as I was going down the bridge, you know, I pushed my foot down to slow down and my foot didn't hit the pedal, you know, because remember I have flip-flops on, maybe not the best decision. And it flips, the flip-flop literally flips down and my foot hits the ground, catches on the wheel and I do a flip. And I flip a couple of times. Now on the right side is the bottom of the railroad tracks, which is probably 40 or 50 feet down, okay? On the left side is the uh, oncoming traffic, the two lanes of oncoming traffic. So I do a couple of flips. And I, you know, kind of come to, I haven't been there a while, but I just kind of, you know, I'm shaking. And I'm in the middle of the street where all the cars are coming. So the first thing is I got to get my bike out of the street. That's the most important thing, right? Forget myself, got to get my bike. And I move over to the sidewalk. And then I kind of take assessment of myself and see that I've got, you know, two messed up toes, two big toes. Uh, I've got scars on my hand that are still existent today. Scars that are still there on my knuckles and on my hand. And I've got what seems like a thousand little tiny scrapes all up and down my, my arms wearing a sleeveless shirt. Again, not the best decision. So I go home, I present myself to my mom, and looks, looks what happened, and she looks at me, she says, now you know we've got to put some rubbing alcohol or peroxide on all those cuts and scrapes. And I thought to myself, this is really going to hurt. But then as that was happening, I thought to myself, I said, whatever happened to my drink? Whatever happened to that? Because when I looked at everything, she was looking at me, are you okay? You have a concussion or anything? No. And then I realized, so I was thinking back, what I guess happened is when I went down, that drink went with me, and that drink hit the pavement first, and then my head hit the drink, the cup. So it actually saved my head from getting messed up and destroyed. But nonetheless, I look back at that situation. At the time... I thought, hey, that was common sense, right? I've done that hundreds of times, and I have done that before. But that one time, it didn't work out. Now, today, I wouldn't do that. You're crazy if you think I would try something like that again. Even as, as, as older as I might be and maybe more stable with my bike riding as, as, as I might be today, I wouldn't do that. That's common sense today. But for me back then... That wasn't common sense. And so what I want to do is I want to take that theme of common sense, and I want you to see how it's weaved through this narrative here in Joshua chapter 9. And so what's happened is that the Israelites have crossed over the Jordan to the promised land. They've defeated Jericho. They've had some trouble with the city of Ai, but after a second time, they defeat the city. And they're in journey to the next city in conquest of the promised land. And there are some ambassadors that show up. Listen to what it says in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1. And it came to pass when all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and the lowlands and in all the coasts of the great sea towards Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, they all heard about it. And that they gathered together to fight with Joshua and Israel with one accord. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done at Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily and went and pretended to be ambassadors. And they took old sacks 
on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua to the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Then the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, so how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? So they said to them, from a very far country your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. And all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. To Sion, king of Hezbon. To Og, king of Bashan, who was at Astaroth. Therefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spoke to us saying, take provisions with you for the journey and go meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Now therefore make a covenant with us. This bread of ours we took hot for our provision from our houses on the day that we departed to come to you. But now look, it's dry and it's moldy. And these wineskins which we filled were new and see they are torn. And these are garments and our sandals have become old because of the very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. So Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them and let them live. And the rulers of the congregation swore to them. And it happened at the end of three days that after they had made a covenant with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors who dwelt in them. This phrase, Joshua did not seek counsel from the Lord. That's the main part of what I really want you to get tonight, or excuse me, this morning. You know, at first, a first reading of this text, Joshua and, and the elders were sp- suspicious of these ambassadors who came to make a peace treaty with them. They had a well-crafted plan. They didn't leave anything to chance. It crossed all their I's, dotted all their T's. Everything we have is old, they said, because we come from a faraway land. And from all that Joshua and the elders saw, common sense would dictate that they're from a faraway place. Therefore, because it's not against the law, as they lived outside the land, we can make a treaty with them. Common sense said it was okay, but, but they didn't bother to check with God first. And from what we read in the text, the decision seems like it was made quickly. But was there hurry? Why were they in a rush? Were they on a schedule? The text says nothing about that. Could they have waited a few days? Remember, common sense is contextual. Joshua and these elders were familiar with treaties. They were familiar with wartime tactics. They were familiar with strategies that the enemy might employ. But Joshua forgot this one crucial, simple part of his training. He did not seek the Lord's guidance. And by the way, that's part of our training today as well. Back in the book of Numbers, when Joshua was getting ready to take leadership from Moses, listen to what Moses says to Joshua. This is back in Numbers 27, verse 18. This is when Joshua was inaugurated to take leadership from Moses, okay? This is a big deal. Listen to what he says in in Numbers 27. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation, and inaugurate him in their sight. 
And you shall give some of your authority to him, that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. And at his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in. He and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. Joshua knew better. Common sense, according to Joshua, as given by the Lord himself, the directive here was that he must first seek the Lord before any decision is made. And how he sought the Lord was to go through Eleazar the priest, and the priest would go to God. Any decision. These weren't small decisions. This wasn't a small decision. It was a decision that affected the welfare of the entire nation. And maybe when you have a decision to make that affects your family or maybe your company, your small business, or those close to you, it's common sense that you've got to take the matter to God. You know, following this guidance and leading, pray about it. Take your time in making the decision. Common sense might tell you to go in one direction, but God's sense might tell you to go in a completely opposite direction. Now, now, now here's the rub, because this isn't the first time that Joshua had some trouble. Early on in the narrative of the book of Joshua, we find the same problem. Chapter 9 seems to be the third time that Joshua doesn't wait for God's instructions. That's right, the third time. What are the other two? Well, if you roll back to Joshua chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you like. It's just a few chapters back. Chapter 2. And very first part of verse 1 in chapter 2, it says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men to spy out the land. If you remember the story back in chapter 2 when he's getting ready to take Jericho. And so they send out the two spies. And the two spies go around the land and they go into the city of Jericho. And they end up coming to the house of Rahab. Remember the story? And Rahab protects them. And Rahab puts them on the roof and says, okay, the coast is clear. Now you can leave town. And they make a, a deal and said, because you've saved us, we will make sure that you're saved when we come and destroy Jericho. At the end of that story, the spies come back to Joshua and say, Joshua, I think we can do this. Now, I see nowhere at the start of the conquest where God said to Joshua, hey, send out some spies to Jericho. But Joshua is using common sense in the realm of a military leader, right? Because you send out spies ahead of time. You do some reconnaissance. A good leader does his homework. He's prepared. When the men come back, Joshua says, we got this. Of course, the next day when Joshua gets up, the Lord gives him specific instructions. This is how we cross over the Jordan River. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 of Joshua. And they do exactly as the Lord says. You get to chapter 5 of Joshua and God says, Joshua, the males that were born in the wilderness were not circumcised. That needs to happen before going any further. And so they follow the Lord's command. And as the people are getting closer to Jericho, something unique happens. The commander of the Lord's army, probably the angel of the Lord or a pre-incarnate appearance of, uh, of God, a theophany, appears to Joshua and they have a conversation. We're not told what exactly a conversation they have, but we're told they have a conversation. It's much like Moses' burning bush experience. Remember when Moses got the burning bush experience and God says, I want you to go to Egypt? And God appeared to Moses in a burning bush? That was a big task for Moses, one that he complained about. And he said, I don't know if I can do this. I need somebody to help me. And God says, okay, take your brother with you, <laughs> Aaron. He'll help you. 
Well, this was Joshua's burning bush experience. And the commander of the Lord's army appears to him. And now they come into chapter 6. And they come to Jericho. And God gives them this strange battle plan. If you want to know about that strange battle plan, you can watch the last message I preached on Joshua chapter 6, which is about a little while ago. But it was a strange battle plan. Weird. Not a military strategy. It didn't make any common sense. Okay? But nonetheless, Joshua says, okay, Lord, I'll follow exactly what you want me to do. They go around the city, remember, once every day for six days. And the seventh day, let's go around seven times. Then we shout and the walls come tumbling down. We're not going to sing the song, but you got the point. They did exactly what God says. So now the next conquest is AI. Chapter 7 and chapter 8. And Joshua sends out spies to do reconnaissance again. And look at what it says in Joshua chapter 7, verse 2. It says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth Haven on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the country. So the men went and spotted out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said, Don't let all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack Ai. Don't be weary about all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. And so Joshua says, hey, that sounds like a great idea. Let's send about 3,000 up to Ai. 3,000 men against 12,000 Ai. And Ai sends them packing. They come back. 36 men die from this first encounter. But did you notice what Joshua didn't do? It's right there, clear as day. There's no, well, let me ask the Lord if 3,000 is enough, or let me ask the Lord if this strategy is enough. And he didn't. Common sense says, we've got this. The men said, hey, 3,000 will take care of it. That's all. We don't need any more. Yet in the very last chapter, in chapter 6, they followed this weird, crazy battle plan. And they followed it to a T. It didn't make any sense. But now you get to chapter 7. No common sense. As a result, 36 men lose their life. Now, look at what happens. Look at verse, uh, uh, verse 6. It says, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord that, until evening. And he and the elders of Israel, they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, the Lord God, why have you brought this people over from the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hands of the Emirates to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content to dwell on the other side of the Jordan. Oh, Lord, what shall we say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land will hear it, and they will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? I like what the Lord says. The Lord says to Joshua, get up. Why do, you lie on the, or why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned and transgressed my covenant. Basically, God says, look. says, Joshua, get up off the ground. Stop your whining. Stop your complaining. There's sin in the camp. And if you had thought to ask me before going into AI, we could have dealt with this sin in the first place. But now 36 men have lost, your, have lost their life because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. He didn't follow the common sense. After they take care of this issue with, with AI and take care of the sin in the camp with Achim, 
they go back to Ai a second time. And God draws up the battle plan this time, and guess what? It works, right? It does. And at the end of chapter 8, Joshua says, okay, we need to do, we need to remind everybody about the law. And so at the end of chapter 8, the whole congregation of people of Israel go into a valley where there's almost like two mountainsides. And on one mountainside, they divide up half the people. And on the other mountainside, they divide up the other half of the people. And they recite the law. This side, the blessings. This side, the cursings. Joshua sets up an altar. And they rehearse everything. So they're reminded of everything. All that context brings us back to chapter 9. And once again, in chapter 9, Joshua makes a rash decision based on his own common sense. Listen, when you don't seek the Lord's counsel in your life's decisions, then you're simply being prideful. That's what's happening. You're simply being prideful. You're saying, Lord, my human wisdom is so great that I don't need your help. And that kind of prideful spirit is dangerous, and it's going to lead to disaster. You, know, you need all the help you can get, especially God's help, Right? Because the enemy is relentless. He will find a way to make you fall every single time. And the strategy and cleverness of the enemy caused Joshua to let his guard down. He just did not consult the Lord. He just did not do the simple <laughs> common sense thing. I need your help, Lord. The enemy uses the same strategy against us today. And as we look back at this text in Joshua chapter 9, let me point out a few thoughts about the enemy's agenda with the time that we have left. The first thing I want you to notice about the enemy's agenda is that notice that the enemy wastes no time in developing a strategy. He wastes no time in developing a strategy. Look at verse 3 of chapter 9. It says, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done, they got on it. They started. They worked. As soon as word got out of what happened to Jericho and Ai, they wasted no time in coming up with a plan. When victory comes to us, to God's people, listen, the enemy is right there formulating yet another plan to make us fall. While celebrating spiritual victories is not a bad thing, it's a good thing. You should write down those answers to prayer requests. You should write down when God does something on your behalf. It's not wrong, but you must stay on guard because as soon as we come off the mountaintop, the enemy is right there in the valley waiting for us. He's constantly developing a strategy. If you think you've defeated him in one area, guess what? He's going to hit you in another area. He's going to hit you in another area. He's going to hit you in another area. He wastes no time in developing a strategy. A second thing to note is that the specific strategy of the enemy. You know, you look at this text, verses 4, 5, and 6 here, and you have to think, why this strategy? It's kind of weird, right? Why this strategy? Why not have some other military strategy? We're like, let's divide up, you know, and let's come in ambush, and let's have a plan of when we attack. Why this strategy? Why, hey, let's make a covenant with you. Hey, we want to be your friends. <laughs> Why this strategy? There are lots of military strategies. Even Joshua himself is using an age-old military tactic as he's conquering the promised land. 
If you read the book of Joshua, the part of the conquest is that you go through the center part of the land, the center campaign. You've got uh, Jericho, Ai, Gibeon, all the rest. They're in the center part of the land. You cut off the north from the south. Divide and conquer. You've probably heard that phrase. That's the military strategy that Joshua is using. But yet here it's different. Why this specific one? It's almost as if there were some spies who maybe found their way into the camp and were eavesdropping as the people recited the blessings and the cursings of the law back in chapter 8. And they found a loophole, one that could preserve their life. And so they exploited that loophole. The enemy is not going to broadcast their plans, by the way. Wouldn't that be nice? (laughs) You got up in the morning and the enemy says, okay, I'm going to come at you today this way. Okay, thank you. I'm ready. Or I'm going to come at you today this way. Okay, I'm ready. Wouldn't that be nice? Enemy's going to find a way to exploit both our weaknesses and our strengths. He's going to develop a well-thought-out strategy that will suck us in and cause us to fall before we even know what happened. The strategy that the enemy used was contextual. It was to the nation of Israel. They knew that the nation of Israel was tasked with pushing out all the inhabitants inside the land. So if we come up with a strategy that says, hey, we're from outside the land, then they'll let us become partners with them, make a covenant with them. Listen, the enemy is very, very clever. Third thing here, a third point here. The enemy took time to ensure everything looked authentic to make sure everything looked authentic. They gave an Oscar-worthy performance, didn't they? I mean, you read it here. Everything about their dress, their possessions, probably even their smell, right? They probably went and rolled around in some mud or something and made it sound like they were really from a faraway land. Everything was designed for authenticity. Look how many times the word old shows up in these verses. Look at verse 4. Toward the end, or verse 5. No, verse 4. Old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins tornamented, old and patched sandals on their feet, old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their position was dry, moldy, and probably old. Old, 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 old. It was all designed to give the appearance that what they were doing was authentic. And by the way, it's the same is true for us when we're confronted by the enemy. He comes to us in a wolf in sheep's clothing. He makes it look authentic. He dresses up as an angel of light. As Paul says in Corinthians, he makes it look authentic. By the way, here's a thought. If the enemy takes so much time in developing a strategy to make it authentic, to make it real, then why can't we take more time in assessing the situation before making a decision? If the enemy takes so much time, I mean, the enemy was so sure of their strategy, right, that they invited Joshua and the elders, hey, come here, verify our statements. Here, here, look, look at my sandal. Here, touch my sandal. See, see how it's old? Look at my wineskin. Look inside. See how it's old? Look at my bread. It's all crumbly and falling apart. It's all moldy. Here, touch it. Here, feel it. They were so sure of their strategy that they even invited Joshua and the elders to come touch and feel and see. All the evidence showed a consistency with their story. It was designed to be authentic. As I was 
preparing this message, I just happened to come across another article that was actually put up a few days ago in the Washington Post. Uh, and it was entitled, Ready or Not, Mass Video Deepfakes Are Coming. And the article highlighted several companies that were investing in technology behind a deep fake. If you don't know what a deep fake is, it's a video or audio of someone that's completely taken out of context and put into another context. So they have technology that can take my picture as I'm saying all these words that I'm saying today in the sermon. And they can take those and they can take all those words and they can assemble those words in my face and put me in a completely another context saying completely something contrary to what I would ever say. And you can't really tell because the technology has done so well, so well that you couldn't tell. Of course, there are certain things that they say are keys to figuring out if it's a deep fake. Like if the person doesn't blink or he blinks too much, you know, there are certain things you can figure out. But the technology is there. So maybe these Gibeonites are employing, you know, an ancient form of deep fake, I guess. They made their case in such an authentic way that even the seasoned leaders, the seasoned leaders were fooled. Now, to his credit, Joshua and the leaders here, they had their suspicions. But everything seemed to check out because they weren't looking at the situation from God's perspective, they were looking at the situation from their perspective. This is why reading and studying your Bible every day for the rest of your life is so, so important. So, so important. It's the only sure way you can be on guard against the enemy. A fourth, a fourth point here. The enemy often uses flattering words. Flattering words. After the Gibeonites were asked for a second time about their nationality, they lied again. But this time they add a little bit of flattery to it. We have come because of the name, the great name of the Lord your God. We've heard of his great fame. We've heard of his destruction. We've heard of Egypt. We've heard of the two kings on the other side of the Jordan. We've heard about his mighty works. Well, I tell you what, they're buttering them up, aren't they? That's a lot of flattery. Now, now notice, it's kind of, you may not have picked up on this. When they talk about the defeats, they talk about the defeats that happened outside the land. Okay? These kings, two kings, they talk about and defeat Egypt and the two kings on the other side of the Jordan. They're outside the land. Because if they talked about Jericho and Ai, guess what? They would have given themselves up immediately. They said, oh, red flag, you're fake. But they didn't. So they were shrewd. I mean, look how shrewd these guys are. And notice how they called yourselves, we're your servants. We're your servants. We're your servants from a four-way land. We've come to serve the Lord your God. We're your servants. We're your servants. The enemy uses those flattering words. We have to be careful. And, of course, a fifth one, a fifth idea here from the text, and I think it's pretty obvious, is that no one is exempt from the temptations of the enemy. Joshua and the leaders of the people fell into the trap because they just did not ask the counsel of the Lord. Nobody is exempt. It's just as simple as that. And maybe they didn't seek the counsel of the Lord because everything was going so well. Simply put, they had put their guard down. They were confident, relaxed, just won two impressive victories at Jericho and Ai, We've got this. The problem is here is that we're all prone to think of ourselves as independent from God. 
as soon as things are going well. But when things aren't going well, we're very dependent on God. One author said it this way. During trouble, we pray continuously in great detail. But when everything is fine, it's hard to even think about what we should pray for. Isn't that true? I found this statement to be very true. When we are struggling, we can enter into prayer with more detail and more specifics than a new bill being signed into law by Congress. I mean, we can. Lord, this particular thing here, this, this, we'll get so detailed. But when everything's going well, well I, I really don't know what to pray for. Everything's just going good. Well, you can thank God for things. Maybe they didn't seek counsel because they thought it wasn't a big deal. It's a small matter. We don't need to bother God with this. But God does expect us to take the big things to him for counsel, just like he wants us to take the small things, right? I think sometimes he's more glorified when we take the small things because it shows that we know that he cares. The sixth and last part here is that the enemy loves it when we make hasty decisions. Verses 16, 17, and 18. Hasty decisions. It only takes three days. So they make the treaty. Get the picture here. They make the treaty. Okay, we're going on to the next city we're going to defeat. And so they travel on to the next city and have somebody that comes out of the city and the Israelites are asking, well, who, what's the name of the city? They're Gibeon. Okay, say that again. <laughs> okay, we're, we're, we're Gibeonites. We're from Gibeon. And I can imagine Joshua and the leaders and the elders, their stomachs just, you know, just dropped. Three days later, it was the next city on their journey, okay? If they had only waited. The next city on their journey. And of course, the people are not happy with their leaders and they complained. And I think that a rite of passage as a human being is making a hasty decision. Every single person in this room is guilty, although maybe some of your stories are more elaborate and more dramatic than others, right? But hasty decisions, hasty decisions can be dangerous. Now, if, you're a, if you sell cars for a living, I apologize in advance, okay? But think of this like a car salesman and making hasty decisions. Now, you walk onto that lot, and like vultures descending on a piece of meat, they're ready to greet you as soon as you step foot on that lot. All the cars are shined up, beautiful, washed every day. They're so friendly. Typically, the more they sell, the bigger commissions. Not always the case, but... And many people end up buying more of a car than what they actually need, Right? It's a hasty decision. Oh, you don't want this model? You want this one? Well, I don't know. I've had a couple people come and look at this same car today. And it might not be here tomorrow. And we don't have much inventory anymore. And this is the last one left. And we're not going to get any more of this model in. I don't know. You know, this other person was here yesterday. And they're getting financing for today. And they might be back here in the next couple of hours. So I don't know. I, I don't know what you want to do. Talk about all the pressure. All the, all the stress. You're like, oh, what, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Now, if you're like me, I'm kind of the exact opposite most of the time. If you want to press me for a decision, that makes me stay firm of not making the decision. It makes me want to stay there and dig my feet in and say, nope, I'm not going to make the decision. If you want me to make it right here on the spot, I'm not going to make it right here on the spot. 
And the last time, uh, about a year ago, uh, when I purchased another car, that happened. I mean, I went in and went in for one thing, and they thought I was going to purchase this one vehicle, and I ended up changing my mind. They even had gone so far as to already change the license plate for me. As I was going in to the uh, finance manager to organize things, and I still had a couple of things to work out with my bank because I was using my own financing. And I called them, and I had still a few things to work out, so I had a couple days that I had to work some things out. So I said, okay, we'll come back to it. They're like, you sure? If you, once you leave, this deal's never going to be the same again, you know? Once you leave. They had already changed the license plate. So I said, I'm sorry. You're going to have to change it. And so I waited. You know, I, they go to change it, and they walk slowly, you know, over to the car. <laughs> okay, we'll change it. Are you sure? Yeah, I'll change it. I just, I just, it was kind of, um, I didn't get joy out of it, but it was kind of that feeling of like, this is what I plan to do. This is what I'm staying to do. And sure enough, later on, a few days later, I came back and purchased an entirely different vehicle. The Lord uh, gave us a better, a better option, a better deal. And as a result of me just waiting a few days instead of being pressured, it worked out. Now, that's not always the case, but I am reminded of a classic scripture in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. that says, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Never, 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 never trust your own judgment in anything. When common sense tells you that there's a certain course of action is the best, lift up your hands in prayer to God and ask him for help. Because the right path and direction might be the complete opposite of what we call common sense. When you're pressured and stressed, you feel a decision or action must be taken immediately, refer that pressing matter to the courts of heaven above. And if you're still in doubt, take courage to stand still and wait on God. If you don't have peace with God about it, don't move in any direction. Be strong enough. Be brave enough to simply wait. Scripture tells us that in Psalms, wait on the Lord. Isaiah, wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord. What is so difficult with just waiting? I don't have peace about it. I'm not going to make that decision right now. I'm waiting. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. What is so difficult? Just simply stop and wait. You say, well, you're pressured. Your decisions, you don't know the situation. You're right, I don't. But I guarantee that if you wait until the Lord gives you a firm peace about it, you're going to be so much better off. So much better off. As a result of not waiting for the Gibeonites, guess what happens? In the very next chapter, in Joshua chapter 10, the rest of the nations in the land learn what the Gibeonites have done. They don't like it. You're siding with our enemy, Israel. And so they decide, we're going to attack the Gibeonites. And so what does that mean? Well, if they attack the Gibeonites, guess what? Israel has to come and help. So already Israel's called upon to fight the battle of somebody else inside the land. They wouldn't have had to go through all that mess if Joshua and the elders simply, simply, simply had just waited. Waited. These are... The leadership. This is Joshua. 
Each one of those men were leaders of the 12 tribes, this group. These are the guys that made the hasty decision. These are the guys that didn't wait. You ever wonder sometimes why we as a church don't do things maybe as quickly as some people think we should do them? Maybe you should do this, or you should do this, or hey, I think this is a good idea. Well, let's start this, or let's do this ministry, or let's do this, or let's do that. Or what about here? How come we're not doing this? There's a reason why. We wait till we have peace about it. We wait till God says, okay, that's the direction you need to go. We have enough courage, enough wherewithal to stand and say, wait. Now, it doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. But we have enough understanding to say, wait, let's wait and get the Lord's peace on it. Now, you can't get the Lord's peace on something of a decision you're making if you're not in a relationship with him every single day. So if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not praying, if you're not seeking his will, then it's going to be hard for you to be at peace when you have to make a decision. Don't make those hasty decisions. You might be thinking, well, it's too late for me. <laughs> I've already bought that $80,000 truck. It's too, late. it's too late for me. I've already way over what I need. The good news is that God can still redeem those things for good. The good news is that he still can redeem those hasty decisions for his own good. Look at this nation, the Gibeonites. When the land gets divided up among the 12 tribes, Gibeon was one of the cities that God gave to Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. 400 years later, David stores the tabernacle at Gibeon. One of David's mighty men comes from Gibeon. When Solomon became king, he made sacrifices at Gibeon. When the Jews returned from the captivity of Babylon, the Gibeonites were included in the list. In the days of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites are mentioned as being among the people who rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. So God redeemed that situation for good. But we've got to learn from the example of Joshua, including his mistake. Learn to pray for wisdom. Learn to pray for discernment. Don't rely on your own common sense. Rely on your God sense. And, and by the way, if you're lacking in the God sense category, then do the common sense thing and just ask him for help. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and by the way, we all lack wisdom, let him ask of God and God will freely give it to you. You see, God wants to give you wisdom. He wants you to make the right choice. He wants to help you, but you have to ask for it. And Joshua didn't ask for it. Don't make the same mistake as Joshua. He's a leader. We're not talking about someone in the congregation of Israel. We're not talking about somebody incident. We're talking about a leader. Listen, the enemy can go after anybody. It can go after anybody. The surefire way to fight against the enemy is to simply ask counsel of the Lord. Just to ask counsel of the Lord. When you have to make a decision, as small, as big, as important, maybe as not so important, when you have to make that decision, the first person that you need to go to is God. That's common sense. If it wasn't common sense to you, now you're held accountable to it because I just told you it was, okay? Now it's common sense. That's the very first place. And have enough courage. 
have enough backbone that if you don't get an answer right away, then just wait. Then just wait. Then just wait. Wait until there's peace about it. Think about Jesus. Think about his three and a half years on earth. When he became, when he started his ministry, he didn't get crucified right away. It took three and a half years. You know why? Because he was waiting on the Father's will, waiting on the Father's plan. The Father had a plan. He had a time when the crucifixion, the resurrection, when all that was going to take place. It was a specific time. He waited on the Father's will. He's constantly subject to the Father's will. It's there to show us, to be an example to us, that we shouldn't move, we shouldn't make any decision, we shouldn't go anywhere, if it not for the Father's will or for that peace. A great leader as Joshua was, and as he led the people through the promised land, God did great things through Joshua. But you know what? He's human, and he's just like us. And when we come to a hard decision in our life, or maybe it's not so hard, maybe say it's a silly decision, but it might be difficult for you to make, you have got to spend time. Get alone before the Lord. Ask him for help. And don't move on that decision. Have enough courage to stand until he gives you peace about it. But the moment he gives you peace about it, make that decision.